and amen. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Acts? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 8. And I want you to notice some of these words about a character in your New Testament. In fact, he became the writer of probably two-thirds of your New Testament that you hold in your lap this morning. But he wasn't always that way. He wasn't always Paul the Apostle. He was for the first probably half of his life known as Saul of Tarsus. So with your Bible open to Acts chapter 8 and look down with me if you would please. Well actually we're going to start in chapter 7. Would you mind me backing us up? Acts chapter 7 and verse 54. There's a young man named Stephen. He's a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. The day of Pentecost has come and 3,000 people have professed their faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he's no longer dead, no longer in the tomb, no longer on the cross. He's alive and he's filling his people with power. They were knowing that someone else was alive inside them, the living Jesus Christ, and there was boldness and there was joy and there was freedom like they had never experienced. But not everybody was happy with that. The religious establishment was threatened by what Christianity followers of Jesus were presenting, so much so that in this instance, they get so upset with this young man named Stephen they determined to put him to death. Saul, Saul of Tarsus, was one of the number, was one of the group that was party to putting Stephen to death. Not because he had done anything wrong, simply because he professed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You, you don't get in trouble by saying, I believe in God, but you can divide the room when you mention the name of Jesus Christ. You can divide the room. You can talk about Buddha, you can talk about Allah, you can talk about any religion, you can use the general term God. Nobody will get upset. But you mention the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth with affection in your heart, with faith in your heart, and some way or another, somehow, you're going to be offending people. And so it is a matter of importance that uh, we understand that the most single, most powerful name on the face of the earth uttered in any human language is the name of Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Christ. So, so here, and I trust it's true in churches all over the place where there is a genuine loyalty to Jesus Christ, we speak his name with great reverence. We speak his name with great joy. We speak his name with great authority and power. He alone is the one who reached into our hearts and rescued us when we couldn't rescue ourselves. When everybody else had given up on us, he was just starting. And he's put our lives back together, is putting our lives back together in his mercy. Not because we're so perfect or because we've got it all together, because we've got all the answers, but just because he loved us and because we're responding to his mercy. So with that, uh, you didn't ask for that, but I thought we just might establish a little running room in the house this morning. And when they heard this, verse 54, when they heard what Stephen had been saying about Jesus Christ, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they, those who hated him for what he was saying, they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses, those who were stoning, the witnesses against him, the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. That's the New Testament way of saying Stephen died. He fell asleep. He fell asleep meaning that one day there's going to be a great getting up morning. There's going to be a wake up time. That's called the resurrection. So it wasn't over even for Stephen's body. There will be one day a bodily resurrection of those who have fallen asleep in Jesus Christ. So when he says, when Jesus says, the word says, not one hair of your head will perish. He means that actually, and he means that ultimately. He fell asleep. Verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1. Saul, the one who had had the coats laid at his feet, the outer garments, so those who were throwing stones would more easily be able to use the weapons of their hands and arms. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Why, Saul? Because of Jesus of Nazareth. Because of their professed allegiance to this heretic, this fake, this phony, this problem known as Jesus. Find chapter 9. Now Saul, verse 1, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, a code name for the church, the followers of the way of Jesus, Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So that if he found anyone belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem as he was traveling. It happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord, this being the Lord Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, parenthetically, that he is a difficult man. 
how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he, this difficult man, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, words that probably Ananias thought he would never in a thousand lifetimes utter out of his two lips. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he, Paul, regained his sight and got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. And at that point, the rest of Saul's life began. He would come to be known as Saul of Tarsus, not as Saul of Tarsus, but he would come to be known as the Apostle Paul. The word apostle comes from the verb apostello, and it means to be sent, not just sent in a general term, but to be sent with a specific assignment. Sent from God means to be sent with a specific assignment with the assurance that what you're assigned to do will be accomplished. The apostle, the sent from God with authority and anointing to accomplish a specific purpose, Paul, the apostle, Paul. But as we said before, he wasn't always the apostle Paul. He was a difficult man. He had the conclusion that the scriptures had said, had already decreed, that this Jesus of Nazareth in no way could ever fulfill the prophecies regarding the Messiah from the Old Testament because this one in particular stood out. Moses had said, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Now that evidently identified capital punishment That evidently identified being punished in that way because of wrongs, crimes, serious crimes done. And the man hung on the tree was paying with his life for the sins that he had committed. Paul drew the conclusion as a man of Scripture, as a Pharisee, he would say in Philippians 3, strict adherence as they understood it, to the rules and to the laws of God. He had drawn the conclusion that there was no way that Jesus of Nazareth could be the Messiah because he hung on a tree guilty of his own sins. But what Paul didn't get, where he was ignorant, where he had light, but he didn't have all the light, where he was set free from being a difficult man To be in a servant of the Most High God was when it dawned on him as the Lord revealed to him, yes, Jesus was cursed as he hung on the tree, but he wasn't being cursed for his own sins. He was taking in his body the sins of the whole human race, and he was being put to death out of the mercy of God for the sins of the world, so that the world could find a way to be forgiven and free. Saul didn't see that. Saul had opinions about the Scripture, 
that at the end of the day were wrong conclusions about what God was saying. All right, let me reel this back in a little bit. I don't need to get too worked up too soon on this. Because you see, we got to ask ourselves the question on this matter of hope and difficult people. We've got to ask ourselves the question, am I a difficult person? Now, if you're going to live on a desert island out in the middle of nowhere and nobody but seagulls and dolphins around you, then you may never ever in your whole life be a difficult person. But if somehow you are organically connected to the human race, difficult is a word that is a contrasting word and it has to do with community. It has to do with relationships, easy relationships or difficult relationships. So if we are a part of a connectedness with people, we have the opportunity to either be known as a difficult person or an easy person to get along with. You draw that circle a little closer. You bring it in tighter around your heart. And the question is asked, am I a difficult person? in the lives of the ones who really love me and whom I really love. In the light of what we have read about Saul of Tarsus, I, I want to ask, I want to give you four or five questions that you can ask yourself, we can ask ourselves to help determine whether or not I'm a difficult person. <laughs> Isn't it easy? to find a bunch of other difficult people. But what if I'm one? Let me give you two, two results of being a difficult person. Two, two results. And these are relational results. One is shallow relationships. Shallow relationships. You know names, they know you do some things together, but it is skin deep and that's as far as it goes because you're difficult, hard to talk to, not easy to figure out where you're coming from. Put, so put this in the form of a, a difficult person that you're not. And why there would be a shallow relationship is because there's just some things that can't come up. There's some things you can't talk about. Because that person, then it may be you, have already made the mind up. Jesus is a heretic. Though God is saying, that's my son. But Saul was so convinced that his opinions were the right ones that he was accusing Jesus of being something he was not. Yeah, here, here are these five, four or five questions. Am I, am I a difficult person? Number one, are your feelings final? Your feelings final. When you feel something, it's already settled. <laughs> That's the way it is. And it wouldn't matter who tried to come up and say, but your feelings are not the truth even logically or, or in other positions in ways emotionally, that can't be true. But your feelings, if you feel it, it's final. And as long as everybody else goes along with your feelings, it's a happy time. But if somebody seems to, even by the look on their face, contradict what you feel, Got a big question mark over that life. Immediately, shallowness steps into the relationship. Because that one, if, if, if my feelings can't be challenged, and I'm so big about that, 
Don't even bring that up. Don't even talk about it. Or, or you, they bring it up. And, and here comes here, the loosing of heat-seeking missiles to just destroy the one who speaks something that challenges your feelings. The natural response on a human level is, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. I'm, I'm not going to bring that up to her again. Shallow. Shallowness in the relationships. And the second thing that happens is separation. Folks will just start backing away. Start backing away. A difficult person is going to be surrounded by shallow relationships and separation. It may not be organic in the sense of, of geographical millions of miles, but there's just a separation that is palpable. And we, we curtsy, I, well, I don't, I might even know how to do that, but you, you, step into these, you step into these arrangements, holidays, birthdays, so forth, and we do these shallow, plastic, phony relationship attempts, but we just know her opinions, her feelings, her feelings are final. You challenge her feelings and you have hell to pay. Ma'am or sir, you are a difficult person. I am a difficult person if feelings are the order of the day. Feelings are final. You see, that was Saul. He felt like, he felt like, he felt like, he felt like he was doing the right thing. He felt like he was defending orthodoxy. He was defending truth. When in reality, his feelings were flat wrong. Here's number two. If that didn't make us all happy and just want to smile a little bit, say that's good preaching, preacher. Number two. Have your opinions made you oblivious to the needs of people? Have your opinions made you oblivious, meaning out of touch with, not caring the needs of people? Saul somehow felt like on the basis of his opinion of how wrong Jesus was, that he had the right, God was behind it. He was doing God's work to step in, break through doors, take a mama and a daddy and the babies, haul them off, men to prison, women to prison, children, who knows where they were, and it was all good with God. His opinions had made him oblivious to the needs of people. Now, folks, here is, a, here is a verse that will come up again and again and again in this. Micah 6, 8. In the spite of all the scripture that Saul knew and all that he thought he was defending, he just missed this powerful summary verse in the Old Testament. The Lord has shown you, O man, what is good. And what he requires of you. To do what's right, but to love mercy. To love kindness. To love mercy. That means acts of kindness and sympathy and compassion that are not deserved by the one to whom they're being extended. Somewhere in all of Saul's scripture... And it would come up again when Jesus would say to the Pharisees, you, you make this big deal and you punish the people about the, how they haven't given here and they haven't been to this feast, and haven't, but you, you, you've completely ignored the weightier provisions of the law, which is the mercy of God and the kindness of God. Have my opinions caused me to be oblivious to the needs of people? whom God has put me in their lives for the purpose of loving and representing his heart and to give them an opportunity to love me back and in a sense that they're responding to the kindness. If I'm not getting kindness back, 
I got to check what kind of seed I'm sowing. But you say, I, you don't know what was been done to me. What, happened, what, what was done to Jesus when he went on to the cross? Who was out there saying at the time he was dying, oh, we're so sorry for what we have done. We've, we've, replaced, we've replaced religion for a real relationship with God. We, we've, we've, we've lost the sense of, of compassion for people. It's all about money and position and stuff. Who was out there as he was bleeding and dying for our sins doing that? If he had waited for us to come to our senses before he showed us compassion, we would still be lost and in our sins and he would still be in heaven. So consider that. Have our opinions, opinions made us oblivious to the needs of people. Third one is this. Has your mission made you mean? Has your mission, this is what I'm about, this is who I am, this is my mission, this is why I'm on this earth, this is what I'm here to do. Has your mission made you mean? The mission that Saul thought was God's mission for him made him mean. <laughs> it's a sad thing. Some of the meanest folks I've ever met have been folks who had great, big, marked-up Bibles and could tell you when they were baptized and show you the notches on their gospel gun belt of how many people they had led through a prayer to receive Christ. But when it comes down to having compassion for folks who are caught in sin, having compassion for ones who totally renounce or reject what they're trying to say, it's, oh, I've been there, I've tried that, they just deserve hell. No, 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 we deserve hell and while we were deserving hell, Jesus and his love came after us. He was not oblivious to our need. So, so are my feelings final? Are my opinions making me oblivious? Is my mission, has it made me mean? Have your conclusions, number four, made you cruel? Now, that kind of cruelty can come not so much in an overt act of cruelty, doing something, or words spoken in cruelty. Cruelty in the lives of folks who are supposed to love each other, cruelty can be expressed in just by absenting yourself from the equation. Just pulling back, withdrawing. Conclusions that I don't have to, that I don't need to, that I, for some reason, I don't owe anything there. Cruel conclusions that make you cruel. Paul, Saul, had concluded, I mean, he used the Bible to build his conclusions. He could show you chapter and verse of why Jesus should have been treated as a heretic and all his followers were suspect and were dangerous to the existing religious institution. His conclusions made him cruel. Now, you bring that into your marriage. <laughs> Don't anybody raise the hand of your partner saying this one right here. But instead of it being some universal thing. In, in the one, the relationships with the ones the closest to us, are there some places in which our conclusions that really are nothing more than souped up opinions and feelings have caused us to withhold, withdraw, back away, And in that sense, cruel. Now let me, let me give you two places that difficult, difficulty comes from. Becoming a difficult person, two places that they come from. And, and, I, and I pray you, this is not exhaustive. 
but I believe it's true. Saul became a difficult person, cruel in the process of it, justified in his own mind that this is the way God feels because it's the way I feel when it was totally opposite the way God feels. But Paul got there because of ignorance. Smart man, mastered a series of languages. He could argue with the best, but he was ignorant not only as to who Jesus Christ was, but ignorant as to what is the most important part of who God is. He was stuck on the half-truth, the partial truth, that God is law. God is black and white. God is this way or the highway. Truth is truth. God is the God of truth. But what he didn't realize, God is a God of infinite mercy. He reaches low from an incredibly high place to take hold of the deepest and the most lonely and the most hopelessly, helplessly lost. Not because the hopelessly, helplessly lost deserves it, but just because it's in God's heart to express it. Paul thought, I deserve, I've earned the love of God and the favor of God because of all the verses I've memorized and because of the things, all the things I haven't done and because of all the self-sacrificing things that I am doing. And he forgot a sin as deadly as any other is the sin of self righteousness. I got this place of favor with God because of what I did to prove how good I am. So hard did that hit Saul. So powerfully did that blow up his inflated, ignorant ego that as he wrote, he would describe himself in terms like I am the least of all the saints. I am the chief of all the sinners. Why? Because his ignorance got replaced with the truth. The reason some folks can be so difficult is because they have this definition of what success is, what a, an honorable life would be, and where happiness would be found. And in many cases, there'll be the journey through life by those individuals only to find that those assumptions held in the beginning that motivated their strenuous striving for success failed them disappointed them. What happens if you get there and you have a billion dollars cash in the bank, but the billion dollars cash in the bank cannot buy that lost family back again, Amen. cannot restore health, cannot rescue ones you are loving, but you can't throw enough money at to fix. Sometimes we have to get what we dreamed about only to find out that it was a false illusion. It took Jesus in his mercy, in his love for Saul, even though Saul was doing everything he could to show his despising of Jesus, even his hatred of the followers of Jesus, even through all of that junk that was going on inside Saul, Jesus was loving that man. He was loving that difficult man. He was pursuing that difficult man. And on that day on the Damascus Road, when the heavens opened and Jesus appeared, 
And it was God talking to Saul, Mr. Godly person. He goes, well, who are you? I'm God. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Has our mission made us mean? Have our conclusions made us cruel? This next one and last one is unnecessarily found that we can verify in Paul's life. But, but I believe that it's, it fits, it's true in our lives. Not are your feelings final and just have your opinions made you oblivious to the needs of people. Has your mission made you cruel? Have your conclusions, or mean, have your conclusions made you cruel? But this one, do the same issues come up again and again and again? The issues that have invoked people to want to speak into your life. It may have started out as a boss, or before that it may have been a parent, or it might have been a coach, or the same issue coming up again and again and again and again. Those circling that one identified as a difficult person in our example here loved dearly. The difficult person loved dearly. And different ones at different times from different settings in the life have sought to just get your ear for a moment and just say, have you ever thought about, or what about this, or doesn't what happened here sound like something that happened here? And maybe instead of it always being everybody in the world's fault, maybe there's something within you that could be changed, that could be adjusted, that the power of the Lord could make you different from the inside out. Now, folks, here's what can happen. And it comes back to that shallowness and separation. If there are some areas in my life that Shirley can't talk to me about, and there have been, <laughs> I want to turn around and say, well, what about you? The problem is when you try to kill the messenger or, 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 or discredit the messenger, that does nothing to help you with the truth that you and I may be missing. Well, what right do you have to say? The point is not what right does she have to say. The point is, is it truth? And do I want to be free? Or do I want to stay paralyzed, shackled, to a state of living that is just existence. It's not joy. Difficult people can sometimes have ones from different settings come at them, not, not come at them in an ugly way or a mean way, but just out of compassion, would you consider? Or what about this? And then when it comes from this one who doesn't know that one who doesn't know this one over here and still, still we stick our heads in the sand and say, well, that's just the way I am or I couldn't help it. Now, folks, if Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, by the power of his omnipotent spirit, alive inside us, before that happens, we might be able to say, I can't help it. And I'll say that again, I can't help it. H-E-P, I can't help it. If you're a standalone outside of the family of Christ, not the temple of the indwelling Holy Spirit, you might be able to say that because we can't. Folks, what if it is true that the God who has never met an enemy that he didn't conquer, who has never faced an impossibility that he didn't overcome, who never met a soul he didn't love with all of his heart, and he is alive inside you. How can we adopt for one split second the conclusion 
that I'm stuck with the way I've always been. Therefore, excuse me, I think. Therefore, if any man or woman be in Christ, the old things have passed away and all things have become new. That means the stuff that was done to you, the wounds that happened to you, can lose their grip and their authority and power to dictate to you failure and rejection for the rest of your life. Because there's something greater. There's somebody greater than the old things, greater than the past, and it's Jesus. But you know what we can get to do it? We can get to, we, we've been living so long with ourselves and the things about ourselves that we could, well, maybe that is a little weakness, maybe that is a little right. We've just adjusted to mediocrity. We've just accepted that I'm always going to be less than a conqueror in Christ. That all the other verses in the Bible are true except that one, that I can do all things through the one who gives me the strength. I, I really can't, and I believe all the Bible except that verse because that's the way I live. I'm stuck with this attitude. I'm stuck with this hurt. I'm stuck with this rejection. I'm stuck with all the. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. Unless you choose it. Unless you choose it. Can I say it one more time? Unless you choose it. You got what is written in black ink on a white page as the revelation of God's heart for you. I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. You were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. There is nothing that has the power to stop you from being all that I have ordained that you should be. Trust me. Trust. The choice is, will I trust him? Or will I remain a difficult person? And people trying to love me. People trying to give me a leg up. People trying to say, Maybe there's more in the equation than what you're figuring in, and that's why you're coming up with a sum total that just leaves you stuck. What if there's more? What if there's further evidence? What if there is a God who notices what we do, but he also notices what we don't do, and he loves us anyway? And he knows better than, what, better than we do what we are impotent, incapable of doing on our own. But he says, that's right. That's why I've given you the helper, the Holy Spirit. That's why he's come. That's why he's near. That's why he's not just around you, but he's in you. So that when you don't have any muscles left, he can flex his muscles morally, volitionally, and can keep you going in the way that is right in his sight. Folks, ignorance is one way, is one way that a difficult person becomes a difficult person. That was Saul. He took all the evidence that he had, he wrote it down, added it up, and so that gave him license to do what he did. He became cruel until the revelation of Jesus Christ to his heart exposed and defeated the ignorance in his life. Listen, folks, if you, got, if you have a difficult person in your life and they have the ability, as, as Saul had, he had the ability to, to effect consequences on, on these ones that were, that were somehow brought under his jurisdiction and authority. They didn't have the ability to change him. But God had the ability to change him. And evidently there had been prayers going up for Saul. And the Lord, when he chose to meet with Saul and deal with Saul, he didn't check with the high priest to ask permission. He didn't wait for a perfectly well-suited time in Saul's life to do it. He just, he just came to him. Okay, let me, let me give you, I'm going to do this real quick because we'll maybe come back to this a little bit later. I want to give you four or five, I'm going to just list them. How to live with difficult people how to live with them. Understand it's a process that God can use in their lives, in your life, to bring them out and bring them through. Here's the first one. Understand that they aren't God, and they don't speak for God. 
and they don't act for God. If the difficult person is an authority figure, if the difficult person is someone whose favor you would wish you had, but you don't have it, it can be easy to fall prey to that defeat that gathers about us when we think that really must be God talking. Difficult people are not God talking or God showing his heart. There may be a piece of it. There may be a part of that which the Lord is wanting to bring to your life in, in the form of character. But as far as their heart for you, not true, the heart of God. Number two, get your mind, get your eye on whoever this difficult person is. You got to know that they aren't bulletproof. That they're not above change, they're not above assault or change. Saul was not bulletproof. He had scripture, he had people, he had authority around him, he had political and religious power around him, but he was not bulletproof. Neither is your difficult person. With God, nothing is impossible. When that face comes up, when that memory comes up or those old voices come up or what had been said or done, may this also come up. As you look at that face, as you remember those words with God, nothing is impossible. He is able to change even the heart of the one who has that difficult place in your life. You know they aren't bulletproof. Number three, and I'd really challenge you to do this, seek to find out why they've become that way. Seek to find out why they've become that way. Difficult people become difficult because of ignorance, but the other reason, main reason is because of suffering or sorrow. Something sad, something broke their heart, something crushed them maybe years in the past. And maybe as a result of that, they got angry at God. They're angry at you, but they're really angry at God for letting it happen. It could be. Here's what will happen. I promise you this will happen. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, His Spirit is alive in you, and you're aware of someone who is difficult and the, in, the influence is, is a hard thing to handle, difficult to manage, you don't know what kind of mood they're going to be in or exactly what your response should be, but you don't really know the history. Find somebody who knows their history and have that somebody tell you what happened to them. Here's what I promise you will happen. You may have never felt compassion or mercy in your life for them ever before, but the Jesus in you will connect with the sorrow in them. The mercy of the Jesus in you will be stirred by the brokenness in them. And instead of being carried by these waves of hurt or disappointment or how can I fix this or when will this ever change, it's amazing how compassion and a sense of mercy has the ability to override all of those seeming endless waves of more difficult emotion. And so then from mercy can flow some more patience. From mercy can rise up more hope. I know Jesus has healed my broken heart, and I'm believing that he'll heal your broken heart. Seek to find out why they've become that way. And embrace the mercy of God for them. Embrace the mercy of God. I know, I know some folks, and I've been there myself a time or two, because it's been so difficult, because the, the, the issues can be so uh, calamitous and catastrophic and so forth of, of that have been caused by the difficult person, the main emotion can become, well, God, I'm just expecting you to just deal with the sin in their lives and bring the punishment and bring the retribution and all that stuff. That's what I'm, that's what I'm really hoping for. That emotion will wear you out and make you mean. 
waiting for the vengeance of God to fall, waiting for judgment to come that will wear you out and make you mean. What well, won't wear you out because it is the life of the Spirit, it is the mercy of God for the fallen sinner, for the creature who was broken and can't get up and can't get out and is just fighting the most, as we know, the most dangerous animal in the woods is a wounded animal. That's why they do what they do because they're hurting and they feel like they're dying. When God puts that kind of mercy in your heart for that one who's a difficult person, I'm telling you, they may never get it right. It may be another five years or 10 years before things begin to smooth out for them, or they may never ever get it fixed. But here's what happens for you. Your heart calms down. Your heart, because it's mercy, because it's compassion, and because you're realizing not, well, I didn't do that, God. It's realizing, Lord, you had mercy on me. You forgave me. You drew near to me in my broken place. Lord, I'm asking you to give that one that is so difficult to deal with a double portion of what you did for me. When you get to focus in your prayer that way instead of God, well, this is a good time to just smite them. Here's a good time just to deprive them. Here's a good time to just punish them. How's that working for you? Are y'all, are y'all hearing me? I, I know we're kind of quiet, but I, but I hope it's because we're, we're listening. If somehow God, by the power of his spirit, can supernaturally put mercy in my heart for the one that is so blooming, you know, deplorable, the, 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 the despicable, the, the difficult, put all, put all your words. But if somehow instead of there being just this resentment and this, this just automatic, I, you know, I don't even have anything to do with them. What if that gets turned into, wait a minute, I can see where that came from. I can understand that. Lord, thank you for showing me that. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. Lord, what you did for me to heal my broken heart, what you did to me to bring light to my ignorance, I'm asking you to do it for them. Where I was ignorant and driven along by my feelings or driven along by my conclusions, driven along by my mission, until you revealed to me your heart and exposed my errors. In those times when I was so broken that I didn't know if I'd get up. I don't know how I'd make it to another day. I didn't know how I'd make it to noon. But somehow, Lord, you had mercy on me. And here I am these years later, still alive, praising you and thanking you. But I know where it came from. It came from you and not from me. And I ask you to do that in the heart in the life of the Let me tell you, you got Christmas coming and, and you know, family gets together. Oh, Mr. Difficult, Miss Difficult, Miss Difficult sitting right across there from you. Instead of allowing that to just, to just, to just mess up your cranberry sauce and, 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 to, and to ruin the taste of that, that, that sweet potato thing or, or, that, or, or that turkey, instead of allowing, just, just turn it into prayer. Sitting there just forking it right away, right in your mouth. Just, Lord, I'm in the name of Jesus. Do what you did in my heart in that one right there, Lord. You'll end up being sweeter. You'll end up being nicer. You'll be, you, they, they will end up being drawn to you more than likely because you're not treating them like everybody else is treating them, shallow or separated. There's something inside your heart that now you've got some slack in your rope where you can draw near to them and risk it again. Why? Because you know they're not talking for God. You know they're not bulletproof. And you know that he has a heart for the brokenhearted. Amen? Now look, don't close your Bible or put your little notebook up and say, well, pastor, that was just a sweet little sermon, that sweet little message, and I'll check you later. You can forget that I said it, but I'm telling you, if you'll open your heart up to what the Lord is wanting to bring to you in, in the light of the truth of his word, you don't have to go through seasons feeling the weight of the oppression of difficult people. You don't have to. And you don't have to, I don't have to continue 
being a difficult person. You want what to take some raw courage? As you pull one or two of your closest friends who have known you a long time, you pull them close to you and you ask them the question. In your mind, from what you've seen about me, am I a difficult person to the ones I love? Now you probably, if you need to put a, you know, put a plexiglass window between you and them, then do it, but I don't think you'll need to. But where you would open your heart up, if you sense a shallowness, if you sense a separation, it's probably not that all those people out there are just jerks. It's probably something in you or in me that's causing there to be, well, we don't ever seem to really get deeper. We don't ever really seem to talk about much more than this. Or I just don't seem to see them very much. It's a healthy thing to say, Lord, show me my heart. Show me my heart. Here's, here's, I'll leave you this verse. If we walk in the light, 1 John 1, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's saying... If I walk in the light of truth and reality and transparency with anyone I'm desiring to be in fellowship with, if I walk in that kind of light, there's going to be fellowship, a union, a, a koinonia, a tight bond, blessed by the Spirit of God. And where there is sin, the Lord's going to bring that up and we'll confess it and there's forgiveness for it. But if I don't walk in the light... If I've got in my relationship with people that I want to be close to and I want to be close to them, but there's a thus far and no farther, you, well, I'm not walking in the light. You can't do that necessarily with everybody. But there's no such thing as a fellowship, that kind of fellowship between even a husband and wife, unless the husband and wife are walking in the light together. And I've seen it over the years. Couples will come in and there's something that's happened. They're about to split up. And they've been married 30 years, 35, 45 years, as well as the two-year-olds and the, you know, and the five-year marriages and so forth that just come in and just say, I, I can't, I'm not going to do this anymore. I, I'm, I've done everything I can to, to try to give myself to this person or want to get close to this person. And after these decades, I still feel like it's this far and no farther. And I don't want to live that way anymore. Let me in. Let me into your heart. Let me really know you. But no. That has a way of working defeat into even the closest of relationships. We're going to think, well, if they really knew, they wouldn't keep loving me. If they really knew, they wouldn't forgive me. Here's the deal which is the worst price to pay? the sense of shallowness or separation or risking the fact that you tell the truth, you drop the barriers, you, you let them speak into your life, realizing that the Jesus in them will connect with the brokenness in you. That's what happens. The Jesus in them, the mercy in them will connect with the part in you that needs his mercy. And so instead of you being totally by yourself to fix yourself, now you've got a partner. And I'll help you and I'll pray with you. But as long as we wall people out, as long as we feel like our current present feelings are final, my conclusions give me right to act criminally towards someone else by depriving myself them of me or whatever it would be. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way, family. All right, I'm going to finish with this, I promise. One more time, Romans 15, 13. The 
you put yourself right in the middle of you as the difficult person or put yourself in the company of the difficult person? Now, now, right now, may the God of hope fill you up with all joy and peace in believing. In be that means it hadn't happened yet. That means the conclusion hasn't been finalized yet in the natural. No such thing as having to believe in something that's already happening. But he's saying right now, before it happens, he can put in you joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope for the difficult. Hope for the difficult person out there. Hope for the difficult person in here. Where's the change going to come? change is going to come from him doing it in me, him doing it in the one I love.